Escape velocity. What was that? Oh, that song we just played. No, I got punched. Uh, Welcome to episode two of Escape Velocity Radio. We're your hosts, Jesus H. Chris and the amazing, keep going, Derek Hogue. Thank you. Thank you for that intro. It's very accurate. You're welcome, Derek. How are you today, Derek? How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Are you really? I am. For real. For real? In this world? Well, you're a fool. It's all relative. So how do you feel about how... The first episode went out into the world, how it was received. I believe we both had our reservations, mm-hmm. and I believe the response was, hey, hey, what about the phone, the phone line? Did anybody call into the uh, Escape Velocity phone line? You know what? Fuck, I haven't checked. Let's, let's check. Ch- let's check right now. On air. Let's do this. Okay, wicked. Oh, boy. There might be too many to go through. Here we go. I'll just dial it here. Um, You have no new messages. What? Oh, wait a minute. That's not. I must have. No. Yeah. Wrong. You. You. It was the wrong number. Here. I'll. It's. It's two three, not three two. Let me try that again. I must okay. have got those wrong. You have no new messages. What the what? fuck? That's. You know. Okay. You know. I heard. I did read about this bug. With Skype, where there's like a delay. A delay. Yeah, sometimes they get a backlog. Oh, because so many people called? Yeah, so they kind of flag you, and then they kind of, they do a manual processing. So let's check back in a bit. Right, we probably got flooded with calls. Yeah, I think there'll be more uh, if we check back in a little while. Yeah, yeah, that must be it. Okay. Uh, We also got some comments on the website. So we were told that the audio quality was great. It wasn't. It was it was pretty good. It was all right. We have some technical challenges here at the uh, Escape Velocity Bunker. Yeah. That must be overcome through your donations. <laughs> Please. Dustin Heron wants to know more about the finer details of failed states, such as song subject matter and inspiration, guitar setups, restrictions on the art layout of the album, the upcoming tour, etc. Well. I will direct Dustin to the Propagandy website, propagandy.com, because Derek won't let me talk about the band more than a few seconds every episode. It's true. I have an official band. Was there any negative? uh, We have had no negative feedback, which makes me suspicious. That means no one's listening. Yeah. If if we don't have negative feedback, no one is listening. listening. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Well, Chris, another day. Another mass shooting in the United States oh, of America. God. Not another one. Well, not today. Oh. Yeah. Or yesterday. Actually, it's been at least a few weeks. Okay. All of our listeners will have heard by now, unless they live under a rock, which can be recommended from time to time. 
about the uh, tragic shooting in Milwaukee at the Sikh temple. You know, mass shootings are not, they're not a rare occurrence in the United States. It doesn't seem like it. What is always most interesting to me is how the media frames what has happened. Author and professor Juan Cole. You do this part. Just don't think. Just, why, I'm doing all the talking. I know. You're good at it. I'm not. I'm terrible at it. You're good at it. Well, I, I have no opinions. I don't know anything. I honestly Nor do don't. I. Keep going. No. Okay, what, what did the guy say? Now I'm self-conscious about <laughs> it. Let me see. Pass it over. Juan Cole. Who is this guy? He is an author. He is a uh, professor. He is a U.S. foreign policy critic. Okay, well, here's what he says about the top 10 differences between white terrorists and others. Number one, white terrorists are called gunmen. What does that even mean? A person with a gun? Wouldn't that be like everyone in the U.S.? Other terrorists are called like terrorists. Two, white terrorists are troubled loners. Other terrorists are always suspected of being part of a global plot, even when they are obviously troubled loners. Three, Doing a study on the danger of white terrorists at the Department of Homeland Security will get you sidelined by angry white congressmen. Doing studies on other kinds of terrorists is a guaranteed promotion. I found that same thing when I was at the Department of Homeland Security. Four, the family of a white terrorist is interviewed, weeping as they wonder where he went wrong. The families of other terrorists are almost never interviewed. Five, white terrorists are part of a fringe. Other terrorists are apparently mainstream. Six, White terrorists are random events like tornadoes. Other terrorists are long-running conspiracies. Seven, white terrorists are never called white, but other terrorists are given ethnic affiliations. Interesting. Yeah, it's true. Eight, nobody thinks white terrorists are typical of white people, but other terrorists are considered paragons of their societies. Nine, white terrorists are alcoholics, addicts, or mentally ill. Other terrorists are apparently clean living and perfectly sane. What? 10. There is nothing you can do about white terrorists. Gun control won't stop them. No policy you could make, no government program could possibly have an impact on them. But hundreds of billions of dollars must be spent on police and the Department of Defense on the TSA, which must virtually strip search 60 million people a year to deal with other terrorists. I guess other in all these points, he means non-white people. Yeah. Yeah, some of this makes sense. I don't know about non-white terrorists appearing clean living and perfectly sane. Yeah, I think what he's he's just pointing to there's a little bit of a, an absurdity in that it's not that the media depicts the other terrorists as clean living and perfectly sane, but it's right. that they don't try to address what was their mental state? What was their childhood? What led them to this? These questions are not even addressed when dealing with non-white terrorists. Right. The main thing I get out of this list is that I think you're actually a white terrorist <laughs> because they're loners. They're hey, troubled. They're what? alcoholics. <laughs> what? And they own guns. And they own guns. Uh-oh. Well, it's true. I, I am a reluctant gun owner, Derek. Yes. Which brings up an, another point about not only this mass shooting, but also the mass shooting in Aurora, Colorado. Not to mention Andrew Brevik in Norway. Mm-hmm. Which is, what is the role of gun control? Does gun control, can gun control stop killings like this? Can, can it reduce the severity of the killings? Obviously, we don't have the answers to these questions. One of the, at least in America, one of the objections to gun controls based on what is plainly a myth about uh, deposing potential tyrants. Right. And I, I saw 
a political cartoon on the net the other day and it had a list, a scoreboard. And on one side was the list of tyrants deposed by people with guns. Zero. It was zero. And the other side was innocent people killed by guns. And Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, an endless number. Illustrating the fact that people who advocate against gun control don't seem to depose any tyrants with their guns, or at least they don't perceive that we actually are under any tyranny, when in fact we are. Mm -hmm. We're under a corporate tyranny, Derek. Yes. I don't want to blow your mind, but we live under a corporate tyranny. I guess it also depends on your definition of gun control, too, because this can mean many, many things. Yeah. But it would seem that in this case, what you're suggesting would be no gun ownership whatsoever. Perhaps, I mean, I would advocate for gun control for the entire populace, including the military and the police. But if there's gun control just for the citizenry, and the only people who are allowed to have guns are the military and the police, you can add them to the list of institutions which commit atrocities against other people and do not depose dictators. Here's, here's all I have to say, Derek, about this whole thing. We are brought up in a society where we are all taught that conflict should be resolved through violence. It's in the music, it's in the movies, it's in the sports, it's in everything. It's in the schoolyard, everywhere. That's how I was brought up. Yeah. Might makes right. Even without that in mind, our culture is so hyper-violent in the video games, in the movies, in the music, everything. We glorify war. People profit off of, off of the weapons of war. People profit off of the imagery of death in movies. And an entire generation has grown up with that. And then we flood the North American market with more guns than could possibly be owned legally by the population tenfold over. What do you expect? People are going to shoot each other. We live in a mentally ill society, so if you flood a mentally ill population with guns, we're going to shoot each other. We are essentially a consumer society with very little to do with our political system, and we know very little about how to be citizens. And we know very little about how to interact with one another without anger and violence and hatred and rage and prejudice and racism. Yes. We probably should have a moratorium until we get a little smarter. (laughs) And on the other hand, how is it that the gun manufacturers can legally manufacture so many guns, yet there aren't enough people in North America to own all those guns legally? They are consciously putting out weapons into society that they know are going to be used illegally. So why aren't they liable? Why aren't they held accountable like every other industry tends to be when people get destroyed by their product? Yeah, I guess because they have a very powerful lobby. Yes, exactly. Those are two salient points. Salient. Yeah. They're very... Oh, so salty. <laughs> but it's interesting because, this is, because what you're implying is that this is very much... A, it's cultural roots. It's, you're talking about the context of North America, specifically the U.S., where there's so much violence and dysfunction at the very root of the society. I read an article which was an anti-gun control article. This is by a man named Dan Baum. Baum? Baum? Baum. Baum. And he's comparing the conversation that takes place after something like the Aurora shooting to the conversation that took place after the Anders Breivik shooting in, in Norway. And about how, in that example, you'd be hard-pressed to find in the media any coverage of what kind of gun he used, but it much more focused on the ideology behind it, the motivations. 
it very much went to the underpinnings of his end goal, not about the fact that he was able to get a gun to do it, especially living in Norway, where it's way harder to get a gun than it is in the United States. Is it? Yeah, the gun laws there are much stricter and the gun ownership is way lower. But it's a fundamentally different society. So I guess the argument he's making here is that the issue in the society is not the guns. The guns are just one tool of many that are utilized by a sick culture to inflict violence uh, upon one another. Right. So what I said. So, <laughs> so what you said, I guess the extension of his argument there is that following these mass shootings, trying to get greater gun control laws is not going to prevent another mass shooting short of a complete ban on the sale and ownership of guns, which would include the millions of guns which are already out there. So, in other words, a completely impossible, impractical solution. So that, therefore, we should be working on the bigger picture, not saying that guns are the issue, which I can see, I think that's a good point, because the anti-gun lobby focuses exactly on that stricter gun control measures and like this is going to be the magic bullet no gun intended <laughs> to uh to solve the issue of of gun violence in america which it probably won't be yeah I, clearly there's more to it than just some pipe dream of gun abolition it's going to take more than that to solve our problems yet I can sympathize with a portion of the population that is fearful of getting shot up in a public space. And any law that would remove guns from, even potentially remove guns from the hands of somebody who might do that, I can see the attraction. Mm -hmm. Even if in a bigger picture it's impractical and or impossible because you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I could see why you'd want to do both. Yeah. And I guess your point about the, the need at some point for an armed citizenry would be that it is absurd to think that at any point... The citizenry of our country or the U.S. would be able to match the might of the state. Not even match the might. We don't have any of the, the neighborly community skills to, like, are you kidding me? Arm Winnipeg to take on anybody? <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You can't even walk down the street with someone fucking yelling at you for riding on the road on your bike. You know, they want to kill you. So you're going to give us all guns and then say, go get Stephen Harper, <laughs> Winnipeg. It's ridiculous. First. Yeah, the strength the strength is in the building of strong communities, not in the arming of communities. Yes. Yeah. There you have it, folks. We've decided how it's going to go. <laughs> Get your education at escapevelocityradio.com. Building better communities by sitting in the basement. So given this, what was your own motivation then to own guns? A different you in the past? Not necessarily. I wanted to demystify the process. I was interested in the acquisition process from a legal paperwork standpoint to see how easy it would be, mm -hmm. how hard it might be, what kind of things they ask for, you know, references, psychological profile, those sort of things. There, there was no psychological profile, was there? They ask you questions on the form about your mental health, okay. your, your marital status, right? and they get people you know to, they phone them and ask them if they think this person, you know, I put Derek Riel and George Samoleski. <laughs> And they phoned them and asked them if this guy was legit to have a gun. They said, yeah. Yeah, go for it. So you see how strict the system is? <laughs> but also, like, uh, I think back then I foresaw a time when shit might hit the fan. And uh, in terms not of an armed uprising, but of society breaking down. A society breaking down. And, and perhaps back then, this was the 90s, 
I was concerned for my safety vis-a-vis a white supremacy movement. Right. Thre- threats against the band or myself. And now I still have, I think, a rational fear or a rational, a rational anxiety about the breakdown of civil society. Yeah. And a desire to protect my family mm-hmm. from and me? people like me? you. And me. Oh, and you and Ruth. And <laughs> can, can we run over here? <laughs> you can run over here and I'll blow your head off. But again, it's, it's a misplaced, the effort of procuring guns and becoming proficient with the guns is misplaced because what you really need when society breaks down is for your neighborhood to be ready. Yeah. For your neighbors to understand what to do and how to work together. But I guess that's why people buy guns, because that's another reason why there's a problem. We don't have communities where people know each other even to begin with and know what to do in the case of the breakdown of the infrastructure that people depend on, like water, police, fire departments, ambulances. Yeah. Every house is for themselves. So everyone gets a gun and is for themselves. But if you had neighborhoods that acted together to know what to do in those kind of emergencies, then uh, you probably wouldn't have everybody with guns. No. Well, and to say nothing of the fact that you'd probably have a much nicer life. Yeah, a nicer neighborhood. And our our street's not even that bad. But generally speaking, people are afraid. Yeah, families, individuals are isolated from one another, generally. You go inside your house, and that's where you go. And you watch TV, and then they get scared about the news, and then they go buy a gun. Mm -hmm. And then they all think, we all think, we're going to sit on top of our houses with guns and then we look across and everyone else is on their roof with a gun and we all blow each other away. You know, as a first step, what can people do? They can go in the evening, sit on their stoops and try to meet their neighbors. Yeah, you could do that. It's a small step. Bring them some beers maybe. Hope no one's an alcoholic. With a gun. I guess ultimately, neither of us know what we're talking about, right? Oh, God, green apartments Rise up the wet black asphalt Be everywhere. Be everywhere.
you for the lies But that's gone and bought a gun He says he's been up with the crime in this town This could be anywhere This could be everywhere Um, I don't want to hijack the podcast for my own personal business interests. Again. Again. But um, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I'm in this band. Uh, have you heard of it? Um, Propagandy. Oh. Local band. Well, yeah. Big on the local scene. Four-piece. Four-piece band. Been around since 86, you know. You always say that, but your first demo didn't come out until... 89. Really? That early? Yeah. I thought it was 91. You're wrong. Fuck the scene. That's not the first demo, you fucking moron. I've never heard this archival gem. Must be nice. <laughs> Fast forward 26 years. <laughs> and we made another record. Have I mentioned that to you? You have. I have. On air, the last podcast. Oh, did I? All those other people, did, all those other 23 people heard it too. So I already mentioned it. You did. Oh. You did. But well, should I, I should probably no. shouldn't go on, should I? Go on. No, please. Oh, just, just one little thing no. I wanted to yes, mention about for it. for sure. The second single from the record was released recently. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, I, I don't know. I just thought maybe we'd want to play it on our show. What's, what's this track called? Well, simply put, it's called uh, Duplicate Keys Ikaro. An Interim Report by Chris Hanna. <laughs> What's an Ikaro? Don't ask me that. Should we hear the song? Let's hear it. Duplicate keys, Ikaro, parentheses, an interim report. <laughs> 
close parentheses. From Propagandy's forthcoming record, Failed States, available on September 4th. Well, most of it's available on September 4th. Did you know the vinyl has been delayed? I What? I did not know this. I told you earlier. <laughs> Come on, man. Keep up appearances here. I I'm hearing you. for the first time. There you have it. Failed States living up to its name. <laughs> uh, I'm, I am hotly anticipating. No, I'm not.
So that was Duplicate Key Zicaro, Derek. Excellent. That is a ripper of a song. From the forthcoming record, Failed States. Available on all formats, except vinyl on September 4th, because the vinyl was delayed due to the riffs shredding the master plates. That sounds like an unlikely explanation for why the vinyl is delayed. Tell us a little more about the album. What's, well, what's the? What, what would you want to know? I don't really like talking about my band. <laughs> <laughs> what about your touring plans, Chris? Are you guys going on the road? You guys going to be? Can the listeners who are interested in seeing your band live, will they be able to do so at any point in the near future? Yes. <clears throat> hey, you need a merch guy? I don't want to go. And, Derek, of course, I will be reporting into the podcast from the road. Will you? Yes. Wow, that's exciting. And unlikely. <laughs> it's maybe more likely that you will give us post-tour reports. Maybe. Here from the basement. Probably. Yeah. But I will try. Okay. I'll make an effort. Yeah, I'm into that. I'll try to get some interviews while I'm out there on the road, too. Ooh. So stay tuned for all that. And more. Or less. Derek, who the fuck is Dave Nickars and why is he sitting on my couch? Chris, Dave Nickars has been involved in the environmental and animal rights movement in Winnipeg for the past 20 years, including several tours on Sea Shepherd vessels. He can also renovate your bathroom for you. Did you know that? No. What is this Sea Shepherd, you may ask? That's an excellent question. What is Sea Shepherd? The Sea Shepherd Conservation Society was founded in 1977 by Paul Watson, a former member of Greenpeace, a founder of Greenpeace, in fact. They are an international organization that patrols the high seas and the low seas, protecting marine mammals from capture and slaughter. Dave Nickars! Welcome. Welcome to Escape Velocity Radio. This is amazing, guys. This studio is so high-tech. I know. We I'm, built it from scratch. I'm, I'm happy more to be here, house. actually. I'm really, I'm really happy you guys called me up. This is, this is going to be a lot of fun. So, Dave, can you tell us, in your own words, about yourself, your history with environmental activism? I started in about 1990, getting involved with forest activism. A couple of years later, I got involved with animal rights activism. And I first heard of the Sea Shepherds also in 1991. So a lot of the things got started in 1990 when I first uh, got into university. I got involved with uh, several different things, animal rights, uh, forest activism, anti-pesticide activism. First got involved with the Sea Shepherds in 1997. Uh, I was called up for crew and I went on my first campaign in 1998. And I've been on eight campaigns in total over the last 14 years. Why did you first get into, you said you started with forest activism. Why did you get into that and what, what uh, attracted you to animal rights activism too? I grew up in the suburbs of Winnipeg and really didn't have much influence except for going to summer camp. I can really credit that for my love of the forests and wanting to do something about that because that really represented to me the, the wilderness, the sort of untouched wilderness. So I really liked forests. I got involved with UMREG, University of Manitoba Recycling and Environmental Group. Standard super long name for no good reason, but um, uh, they introduced me to all sorts of things. I got involved with stuff and the tabling at the University of Manitoba by groups like Manitoba Animal Rights Coalition and then PAL got me involved with vegetarianism then veganism, also animal activism, direct action. 1992, I went to Churchill 
to stop the capture of four beluga whales that were headed for the shed aquarium. And we failed miserably in stopping the capture. It was a really, uh, it was a good shot. We made a good shot at direct action, but we ended up missing every single step as we went up there. We got our boat in the water and the last whales were captured. And all we could do was sort of watch them load them into the planes. It was really depressing. And a short time later, the shed aquarium veterinarian overdosed two of them on antibiotics and killed two of them uh, just after they got captured. So that was really depressing. But the bright, shining moment came shortly after when they banned captures for export, and they never captured ever since. So ever since 1992, that was the last capture in uh, Churchill, which was very good news. Um, and which, who was this with? Sea Shepherd or no? This was with, at the time, the Manitoba Animal Rights Coalition. Wow. It was before PAL. Sea Shepherd did offer the use of a Zodiac, an uh, inflatable boat, but uh, we didn't have time to go get it from Vancouver and drive it back. That action in particular was my first direct action away from home. Uh, up until then, you know, we go to a circus demonstration or, a, you know, something in town and then you get to sleep in your warm bed at night. And that was, that was the first one where I was like, oh, I'm not at home now. I'm up in some foreign place that uh, everybody apparently hates us. So that was my first, my first away from home kind of scared a little bit scared shitless there, but um, ended up being quite quite revealing. And, and it really taught me if I really want to be serious about this, because all the things happened at once. I was really scared going up there. We didn't stop the whale capture, and then two of them died. So, you know, in our sort of hero, like, oh, we're going to go stop them, brah, we're awesome activists. And then two of them died, and two of them got to spend the rest of their lives in a, in a prison. It's not exactly it's very a, sobering. Uh, an affirming experience necessarily. No, but it, it made me think of it in terms of, um, am I serious about this? Do I really want to do this? And do I want to be an advocate, uh, an activist? It's more than just advocate. It's, it's taking action for animals and, and trees and whatever else you might want to consider important. And I, I did take it seriously because I went on to do several other things. And why do you think those things are important? Everything else in our culture is absolute shit. Like really, our consumer culture, you go to the movies and you watch, like I've, I've, I watch TV on the internet, so I don't get commercials, but occasionally I see, see the commercial culture seeping through in movies or, or, or on television. And really none of it matters. Like if everybody stopped buying things tomorrow, it'd probably be the best thing in the world. I grew up in the suburbs and I was, it was a dull life. It was in the suburbs. There was really nothing purposeful about it. Um, I really believe that human beings should have a purpose. And I think my purpose is to take part in, in trying to stop the planet from being destroyed. And, and if that involves a personal choice, like being vegan, I've been vegan for over 20 years now. If it means demonstrating or, or, or taking other, other actions, then it really serves, it serves a greater need or a greater goal in your life than just making money or getting some sort of title or some other bullshit like that. So yeah, sorry, I hate the culture completely. It's, it's complete garbage. Well, what's really connected me and what really got me involved was the media. I remember watching a 60 Minutes interview about Earth First, and these crazy hippies are going on about trees, and I loved it, and I thought, I want to be part of this. And they were talking about, like, all the sorts of direct action. And, and then I, you know, walking around in university in 1991, and um, 
there's a placard in the middle of the university center that says, Paul Watson, Sea Shepherd, he rams ships and sinks ships and come hear him speak at one o'clock. So I'm like, whoa. So I go see Paul Watson speak for the first time. And of course, if you've heard Paul Watson speak, he's a reasonably good public speaker. And I was just like, you know, this guy's no nonsense. He just wants to, you know, get out there and help animals and have a good time doing it too. You know, have a little bit of adventure in your life and purpose. And uh, that was really, really inspiring to me. And so I thought, well, hey, this is something interesting. And, you know, before that, you get told by teachers and, and, and parents and stuff that your life is, well, you're going to get a good job. And then you'll work for 30 or 40 years and then you'll retire and you can do what you want then. I was like, fuck that. I'm not going to do stuff when I retire. I'm going to do stuff now while, while there's still a chance of, of helping anything in particular. And then, you, of course, you learn about the science of what's happening, like global warming was an issue back in the early 90s, but it was still kind of fringe. It was something like, okay, yeah, some people are interested in this, but now it's become somewhat mainstream, which also means a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, once you start looking into the issues, I read, uh, what's that animal rights guy? I want to say Robinson. John Robbins. John, John Robbins. Robbins. Diet for a New America. Diet for a New America. And it was talking about how if you go vegetarian, everything's better. <laughs> Your health is better. There's less water use. There's less environmental damage. There's less animal suffering, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's studies to back it all up. And I'm like, well, this makes total sense. Why hasn't anybody told me about this? Why don't they teach us in schools? You know, if you want to have an impact on the planet, the best way to reduce your carbon footprint is your diet. Diet for New America was also my uh, gateway book. Well, that's the thing. There's the, that's print media right there. Um, 60 Minutes Interview with Earth First was another one, of course, seeing Paul Watson speak. So encountering these really interesting people, organizations, and situations um, really got me involved. Because before that, I was like, well, you know, I'm in engineering. I took computer engineering for three years, although a dwindling three years. By the third year, it's taken like half a course load, and my heart wasn't in it. But I also met tons of activists. Summer 93, everybody's saying, oh, the Clackwood Sound uh, thing's happening. It was this, a was a, this was an old, old growth forest um, on Vancouver Island that was being logged by... Yeah, Macmillan Bladell was the company right. at the time. It's a different one threatening it now. Clackwood Sound is a beautiful valley on Vancouver Island, old growth forest. And we're not talking about boreal forest old growth, which is like 100 years. We're talking about eight, 900 year old trees. There was this massive protest going on. In fact, it was it was one of the largest in Canadian history in terms of uh, people getting arrested. And there was a big train going across Canada, supposedly picking up lots of people. Ended up picking up a lot fewer people than they had bargained for. But I jumped on the train last minute and dropped out of school and uh, went and joined the peace camp and got arrested blockading logging trucks. And I got charged with criminal contempt of a court order. And I learned rather directly that the legal system in Canada and pretty much around the world is basically set up for corporations. Right. Years later, when I went to a court case where a First Nations up north was blockading a rail line having to do with a hydro dam, the lawyer for hydro was citing our case, actually cited uh, Macmillan Blodell versus Sheila Simpson and et al., and uh, he said, this is what the courts are for. They're to protect our rights. They're pr to protect corporate and, and, and uh, you know, economic rights of, of companies. So it was a valuable lesson because a lot of people can spend a lot of time and money and effort trying to fight things in the court. And I think in rare occasions that actually can be valuable. But um, 
in the case of Clackwood Sound, it wasn't. It, it, it ended up being something that people got arrested for, charged, and then they left shortly after they were just wondering what the heck it was all for. The success of that campaign came after that when they went to do a third-party boycott campaign of the Force products coming out of Clackwood Sound and ended up costing the company over a billion dollars in sales and basically reduced logging to about 10% of what it had been basically up until now. It's been reduced since the, the 1990s and uh, it really taught me, okay, where's the power? Where's the power in, the, in our culture right now? And really it's money and corporations. Governments kind of follow along after the fact, you know. Was that the, the radicalizing moment for you or was it seeing Paul Watson? Yeah, Paul Watson was a pretty good radicalizing moment. So was the, the 60 Minutes thing. Just realizing people out there had uh, just wanted to do something and wanted to get it done uh, aside from writing letters and, and petitioning government and going to public hearings, which I actually did a number of times and then realized that was crap too. But uh, yeah, the radicalizing influence was the legal system as well and uh, the economic system and, and the governmental systems that we have to deal with. Dave, can you talk a little bit about some of the campaigns that you've been on on the Sea Shepherd, just to give a little bit of context for generally what the Sea Shepherd is out there doing and what it's like being out there and whether they're achieving their goals generally and in particular when you've been out? There's been a big change in the Sea Shepherd campaign since I first got involved. My first campaign was probably the most controversial, which was the Macaw Whaling Campaign. The Macaw, uh, an Aboriginal group in Washington State in the United States, wanted to return to whaling. And we were one of the groups that were really opposed to that and took our ships out to where it was happening and, and did our best to get in the way. There was a big split in the Macaw community over that. And of course, we supported the people who were anti-whaling, which is you know sort of what we do. That was my first campaign. We had very little money. We had two ships and they were being held together by pieces of metal we'd find in the garbage at the dock. And uh, we would dumpster dive all the time for food. And we did that up until I went back in 2000 and uh, we did a Faroe Islands campaign. The Faroe Islands, they slaughter pilot whales every year. In fact, there's been a Discovery Channel show on that too, which I didn't enjoy at all um, for various reasons. But um, we went to the Faroe Islands and did a small campaign there. And then I went back in 2002 for the first Antarctic campaign, which was kind of a practice run because we didn't actually find the whalers. And it's a big damn ocean. And uh, we took our really slow ship, the Farley Mowat, and it chugged along for about 46 days. And we, you know, basically saw a lot of wildlife and got to see some of the, the continent. We visited the French Antarctic base. Other than that, we didn't find the whalers, but that was our first Antarctic campaign. So joining the Sea Shepherd... Uh, can be a shortcut to some Antarctic tourism. It is, actually. I've been on the continent twice now because of the... I've been on four Antarctic campaigns, and two of them involve going on shore. We only get to go to shore for maybe two or three hours, so it was like a high impact, like, okay, run around, see everything. Yeah, it was very exciting to go see the, the continent. But the, the whole point about the Sea Shepherd campaigns is that ever since Whale Wars came out in 2008... Whale Wars being uh, this Discovery oh, yes. Channel reality TV show yeah. that takes place on the Sea Shepherd vessel. That's right. The Discovery Channel, they put a bunch of uh, camera people on board and sound technicians and a, and a producer, and they film our campaign. And they filmed the first one in the 2007-8 campaign, and it debuted in, I think it was later in 2008. It took a long time in post-production. Post but um, it really showed the nitty-gritty 
everyday action of the campaign, the good and the bad. A lot of the times, if you've ever seen the show, they'll show our mistakes, they'll show our arguments among the crew members, and they'll also show what we do. And our results are that fewer whales are killed um, every year because of our actions in the Southern Ocean. So our profile goes up and we've gotten a lot more donations and, and a lot more help because of it. Why are whales being killed in the Southern Ocean? Yeah, no, no good reason at all. The Japanese government sends down a whaling fleet every year to the Southern Ocean to kill roughly 1,000 whales, um, mostly minke whales and some humpback, actually fin whales they've killed and they were threatening to kill humpback, both of which are endangered, fin and humpback whales. And they kill roughly 1,000 whales, take them back home and sell them in the markets. And it's essentially commercial whaling. It's disguised as science because they write research on the side of their vessel and they do a whole scientific method of some sort when they kill the whales and chop them up and take samples, but most of it goes into freezing. And the strange thing is it doesn't all get eaten. It gets stockpiled and then fed to, used as animal feed. So it's probably the most expensive animal feed in the world. There's a small niche market for whale products, whale meat, and it's certainly not enough to eat a thousand whales anyway. Sort of like the Canadian seal hunt. There's no damn good reason for it at all. We've saved probably well over 3,000 whales in the seven or eight campaigns that we've taken part in down there. Some people question the math because you take the quota and you subtract how many they caught and that's how many we save. Now, the, the thing is the whalers are more than happy to confirm this for us. And they say, we didn't get our quota because of Sea Shepherd. And um, right. well, we'll take that. So what is, the, what is the legal status then internationally of Japan carrying on with this whaling? It's something a lot of countries don't want to challenge them on because there are, there are laws against commercial whaling. There are international agreements. There is the UN endangered species list, and there's all sorts of mechanisms for protecting these animals. Now, nobody wants to enforce it. International Whaling Commission is supposed to oversee whaling worldwide. Ever since most whale species were almost wiped out, they decided in 1986 to have a moratorium on commercial whaling. The next year, Japan came up with a scientific research program that killed the same number of whales they were killing before. So they just wanted to, to, to change it and, and turn it into the guise of science. Now, officially, governments had to be really pushed into stopping this. Like Australia is one of the big governments that's, ha that's near the Southern Ocean. It took years, years and years to force the government. Uh, strangely enough, the Peter Garrett, who's the environment minister, we were trying to push him into doing something about it. Finally, the Australian government was going to take them to the International Court of Justice with regards to this. So that's probably going to take years. But nobody really wants to enforce it. It's like if the U.S. does something or, or another big, powerful country does something sort of quasi-legal and, you know, they, there's just no political will worldwide. So in the vacuum of any political will and also uh, its international waters, we basically go and... and take action to stop the whaling. Uh, we, we've thrown smoke canisters, we've thrown uh, stinky butyric acid, uh, thrown it on the ship. It's a mild acid that really, it smells like vomit, makes it harder to work on deck, mostly harassment thing. Paintballs, we've run into their ships with our ships. We've taken uh, small inflatable boats and put them in the water, not to do the Greenpeace thing. The Greenpeace thing is when you drive in front of the whaling ship and, and spend a couple hours stopping one whaling ship out of three from killing whales. We go in front of the 
most of the time, the Nishinmaru, which is the factory ship, which processes all the whales, everything comes to the factory ship. We do our best to foul their propeller with ropes. We want to actually stop that ship and disable it as best we can. Um, we do that to some of the smaller ships as well. And um, the first time we were ever successful at doing it was the Keiko Maru in uh, 2007. We were on campaign. We were in the Ross Sea, really, really far away from any, any city or port. And uh, we managed to stop a ship. We stopped this ship from, from going anywhere. And we called up the New Zealand search and rescue people. We said, we're going to take the ship in to port. And uh, it's an illegal whaling ship. And they basically said, well, if you take the ship in, we're going to arrest you guys. So they didn't have their, again, there was no political will. So we had to let the ship go. We just disabled it. And it's funny, there's a Greenpeace documentary. That was their last campaign. They did Antarctic campaigns as well. And their last campaign was in 2007. And there's a documentary where one of the Greenpeace people was talking in the radio room, being interviewed, saying, well, we're really concerned that Sea Shepherd's going to cause, you know, cause some problems and maybe even hurt someone. You never know. It's really dangerous down here. And all of a sudden, a mayday goes off. And it's the Keiko Maru putting out a mayday because they're being attacked by us. And <laughs> it was really funny. It was really interesting watching that campaign video from their point of view. And um, then, of course, being on it ourselves from our point of view. So can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the schism there between mm. uh, Sea Shepherd and Greenpeace and whether this is, this is kind of an ongoing thing, is it not? And it, like, is it's there mostly a high-level thing. It's yeah. mostly, it's, it's, you know, Paul Watson was one of the founders of Greenpeace. If you look on the Greenpeace website now, it says he's one of the early members. They don't want to say he's a founding member. Um, that's pretty cold, you know, at least acknowledge that the guy was part of the group in the beginning. You know, we've had Greenpeace crew members come and serve on our ships and then go and serve back on Greenpeace ships. So there's really no, like on, in terms of like the worker bees, <laughs> there's no problem. Right. But occasionally someone will come up, someone from Greenpeace will call us a bunch of terrorists and, uh, Paul Watson will go off and say something about them too. And really we just ignore it. It's, it's unfortunate the really the biggest thing that frustrated me the most about Greenpeace during that 2007 Antarctic campaign was that they weren't willing to cooperate with us. They wouldn't give us the location of the whaling fleet. They wouldn't pass on that information. So we'd passed it on to them when we found the whaling fleet. We said, here they are. And then, of course, when you watch their campaign video, they say, well, we don't want to go and do anything because Sea Shepherd's there and we don't want to be mixed up with them. So it was a really, and that was all high level stuff. People on the ship, even, even on that campaign video, were really angry on the Greenpeace side. They were like, well, what are we doing here then? We're not just going to stand back and watch them, you know, whale or, you know, stand back. We've come all this way with this huge ship and all this time and effort. It takes weeks sometimes to get down there from, from either New Zealand or Australia. It's, it's an extremely long campaign. And because the head office back in Amsterdam of Greenpeace didn't want to be seen with us, that ends up just hurting the whales is essentially the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So we've had Greenpeace people come back and forth on our ships and it's all fine there. But as far as the high level stuff goes, they, they don't want to be seen with us. We're kind of the, the ugly stepchild of the, in their point of view. Over the years, Paul Watson's actually offered to work with Greenpeace several times and been turned down. So that, that's really sad in general in the, for basically, you know, what we're fighting for because we could use each other's information, we could um, combine campaigns, you know, we could have a wider search area, because it takes a long time to search for whaling ships. We've become good at it simply because we've had practice, and we've got a lot of contacts in the uh, different 
research bases and stuff and people report to us information. But um, back in the first few campaigns with, when Greenpeace was involved, it, it, we really needed to work together more. And they have the funds for it. They, you know, they outfit a new ship and it costs them $30 million. Well, our, our campaign, our entire budget for one year is $9 million. And that's nine times what it was 15 years ago when I got started. Just before I got started, it was a $1 million a year organization. So I really enjoy working with Sea Shepherd because we basically run the ships and we get out to where it's happening and we get out there to stop it. We don't go out there to take pictures. We don't go out there to document anything. Um, there are some campaigns where we have to do that because it's within national boundaries. But on open waters, we we stop them. That's our job. And the successful, the biggest success of the campaign in my opinion is the fact that when we show up and we find the whaling ships, they start running and they try to run out our fuel. They don't try to whale. They don't try to kill whales in front of us. They tried that once in 2000, the 2008-9 campaign. They killed five whales in front of us and then we hit them with our ship and they never did it again. We're not going to watch them kill whales. Yeah, so over the years, this last campaign, it was 830 whales were saved from being killed. They only got like 170 something of their quota and um, really that's, you know, all the time at sea, it takes, I spent 90 days on the water in 2009-10 was my last um, Antarctic campaign. And uh, that was Operation Waltzing Matilda. It was named so after all the Australian help that we've been getting. And um, I spent 90 days in the water. My brain was fried. I was just sick of being on board. Everybody thinks, wow, it's a super big adventure. Most of the time you're just waiting You'll see the Whale Wars episode where they're like, well, the ship left port and 10 days later they found the whalers. Well, those 10 days we're doing the same thing every day. You're at, you're at your post, you're doing your job, you're, doing, you're staying with the same people all the time and you've got to really learn to get along with other crew members. That's right. a whole other story right there. But um, What is your post on, on the ships? Well, my, I ended up in the engine room uh, keeping watch on the engines. So we usually have two people on watch and it's a split shift, so you work uh, either noon to 4, midnight to 4 a.m., 4 to 8, 8 to 12. So you work two four-hour shifts per day, and we make sure everything's running okay. So most of the time, it's going great. And uh, when something breaks down, everybody has to get up and start working on it, and it can be terrifying. Or conversely, when you're down in the engine room keeping an eye on all the dials and doing the boring work, and we're we're hitting other ships and stuff. That That's quite exciting as well when you're in the engine room because really the engine room is all below the water line. Right. So we've had we've had collisions where it's actually damaged parts of the engine room and, and luckily we haven't had any flooding or, or water coming in. So the 90 days I spent at sea in 2009 and 2010 were every single day was two four-hour shifts. So four, four, four hours watching the engines, four hours sleeping, four hours watching... That kind of four on eight off is essentially four, four eight on off. eight off four on eight off weird yeah it is it's it's the standard ship design so up on the bridge people are doing the same shift work deck and and galley are different camp you know the galley has to work every day and feed everybody that's hard enough the deck has to do all sorts of different things they clean the heads they mop the floors and do the dishes but also they get to ride the zodiacs and go and fuck up some whaling ships right so life on a ship doesn't observe the circadian rhythms of uh human body no and we go down there in the antarctic summer and it's light out all the time yeah. so even if you decide well i like taking a late shift 
I like taking the four to eight shift because I get to see the sunrise. You don't get to see the sunrise. It kind of yeah. does this this sign the sine wave over the the horizon and just keeps keeping staying up. And yeah, it was it was quite maddening. It's really nice to get back to the nighttime. But yeah, it takes a lot out of you. the The whole point of that was that you spend a long time at sea. You do your job, which can be very boring and monotonous. You do your best to get along with other crew members, and you get, you know, sometimes a few days in a row. Like we've had six or seven days of of confrontation where we were, you know, putting zodiacs in the water and and going after whaling ships and close maneuvers. And uh, I had a little flashback actually. I was. Uh, at a cottage this last weekend at a friend's cottage and we were canoeing and my friend's wife was kayaking in front of us and she was kind of doing these these swervy maneuvers because the kayak was hard to steer and I had a flashback to the whaling ships that were trying to cut us off in front of our ship and I'm just like oh geez <laughs> I need a break well, I've, I haven't been on for two years but um yeah, I, th- I think I'm done with the Antarctic campaigns. I've that, put my that's time some in. some sort of mild PTSD. A, a little bit, yeah. It's much, much worse... Um, flashbacks and, and situations with the seal hunt campaign. I've been on two seal hunt campaigns and we're within the jurisdiction of Canada. So we can't really go ramming boats or anything. And the sealers are just nasty pieces of work. They will cut open a seal in front of you while it's still alive, just to show you who's boss. And, um, yeah, that's really, really not something um, I, I hope I don't have to do another campaign like that. That's awful. But the good news is about the seal hunt is that the ban in Europe of Canadian seal products, and the, I think there's also a ban in Russia that just came through, and uh, that's been screwing up the seal pelts, and they haven't been able to sell any. So the last like three or four years now, they've only taken like a very uh, a much smaller quota. They have this massive quota of three hundred thousand animals that they set. These are, these are essentially baby animals. You're killing the young of the species. And of course, it's horrifically cruel because the more you kill, the more money you get. So they don't stop and do the, the sort of sanctioned eye test where they poke the eye to see if there's a reaction in the brain. They don't give a shit about that. They just cut open the seal. They stab it in the head and drag it back to the ship while it's still squirming. And I'm really happy that they're making a lot less money and a lot fewer seals are being killed. That's just the bottom line. Again, economics did it. So, so well, the can- not finished, but it's- the Sea Shepherd campaigns against the seal hunt um, have been haven't had a lot of direct impact. Have more just maybe been part of a larger with the with yeah. the just raising the public awareness, uh, getting the boycotts going, uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, in two thousand eight, we did a seal hunt campaign, and they decided like they would show us and be big tough guys, and they sent a SWAT team over in a Zodiac and it climbed on our ship and they, at gunpoint, they arrested the whole ship, including myself. This was the Canadian government. This was the Canadian government decided to send a SWAT team, you know, like, I don't know, action movie style to come and arrest us. And what it did in the Canadian media, at least anyway, was it basically made us the victims. You know, we were just a bunch of, well, we were unarmed. First of all, we're, we're always unarmed on our ships. And uh, they sent guys with guns to come after us and arrest the ship. Well, they got their political goal of stopping us and taking us out of the campaign. But then after we were all let go, the first mate and the captain who were actually in charge of the ship were held for a few days. They let the rest of the crew go. And all we did was media interviews. I did media interviews continuously about how horrific the seal hunt was. You know, they'd say, oh, how did it feel to be arrested at gunpoint? And I said, nothing compared to being skinned alive on the on the the ice flows. So it was a depressing campaign. We got arrested, which sucked. And 
got guns pointed at us, which is also not not nice. But afterwards, uh, the media turned, the tide turned. I remember giving CBC hell. CBC is one of the worst outlets um, for promoting the seal hunt. When it comes to certain conservation issues, CBC is the worst. They've always been pro-seal hunt, always been pro-seal hunt. And the CBC guy wanted to interview me all the time. He always, you know, coming around and, and trying to trying to get a quote and, and do an interview. And I said, you guys are the worst. I got to give him shit about it. And he had no choice but to take it. <laughs> but again, CBC and the other news organizations were relatively sympathetic because again, we were just these, you know, hippies on a boat trying to film the seal hunt. And um, they sent guys with guns after us and it turned it around. So that was actually a pretty good feeling. I was able to do something. The 2005 seal hunt campaign uh, was less so. They, the very the media just ignored it, and we just got to see horrific things happen, and then get to go home and deal with it. I wonder if we could uh, address some. You know, there's there's some criticisms that are lobbed at uh, Sea Shepherd around yeah. uh, cultural imperialism, or you know, lack of sensitivity to cultural uh, norms. Like you're talking in particular Japanese culture or macaw. Japanese culture, macaw. I mean, obviously, I th- some people try to lob that at the seal hunt as well. Of course, uh, the seal hunt does not employ any Aboriginal people, and the uh, the seals are not caught to eat for Aboriginal people. So that's usually just a, yeah, a red the- herring. Pardon the pun. But uh, yeah, in particular, yeah. the image of the white crew going to stop the Japanese ships. Mm. It seems seemed to me pretty obviously to be a, uh, an obfuscation of reality, but right. these, these charges do get lobbed as a, as a tactic. The only thing that I'll cop to is that our crew is fairly white. We have a lot of white people on board. We have people from all around the world, and uh, some people, we've had Japanese crew members, we'd have, you know, black crew members and, and, and that, but yeah, that's about all I'll say about that. As as for cultural imperialism, if you have a specific example, well, I guess the macaw campaign would be one example. It's a first a, a, a first peoples, uh, yeah. you know, claiming that they want to, on the surface anyway, revive a traditional hunt, ostensibly for food. Am I correct? That was that was the stated like the the chief and council and and the whaling crew. Um, most of the macaw probably didn't care. There were a few who were opposed to it, and of course, we supported the people who were opposed to the the uh, the whale hunt. Alberta Thompson was one of the elders from the community. Um, she came on our ships, and and we did our best to support her because she was getting a lot of harassment from the the pro whaling faction in her community. And it's a it's a rural community; it can be quite nasty that way. If you read any of the newspaper articles, it it is all about white guys versus Indians and it's 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 a conflict between cultures and we're the imperialists and 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 the funny thing is one of the reporters from the Seattle Post Intelligence or one of those silly newspapers out there they told us directly that as soon as they kill a whale they're going to switch switch the story so right now it's it's a bunch of white guys bugging a bunch of native guys trying to trying to revive their culture and that was the narrative they kept with and they said to us, as soon as that, as soon as a whale is killed, as soon as there's blood spilled, we're going to change it over and we're going to make it look like they're the bad guys. So the media put it out there as, they put it out there as a, as an imperialist thing. We got some people calling us imperialists and being insensitive to culture. In general, I like to think that we're insensitive to all cultures. We're really not interested in 
people wailing that have no vital need. Wailing that happens up north, because the bowhead whale hunt's another issue altogether, but people who whale up north have never stopped whaling, and they use it for food. may not be something we like, but it's not something we're going to oppose. The macaw whaling was or directly started because the Japanese wanted to get different Aboriginal groups around the world whaling again, and the macaw took the bait, and they wanted to start doing that. This was so the this Japanese was at the, at whaling the interests were involved with getting the macaw whaling interests going. Okay. They tried to get the Maori to do the same thing in New Zealand, and they didn't do it. But um, if we didn't oppose the macaw whaling efforts, because we didn't see it as a vital cultural need, um, and to a large extent, we don't address those issues. We're not interested in human culture. Like we get the same thing from people out on the seal hunt saying, we're a bunch of poor people trying to make money and you guys are interfering with it. We get the same thing from the Japanese whalers or the Japanese dolphin killers. Get the same thing from the Faroe Islands, the Norwegians. Um, Iceland, the, there's a, Whaling's been off and on in Iceland for the last few years, but mostly off, thankfully. Everybody tries to claim culture, either whether it's a dominant culture or a culture that's, that's been oppressed. Frankly, it's not an issue for us. We're, we're going to oppose whaling based on what's happening with the whales. Like the gray whales, they just came out of endangered status at that point, I believe, in 1998. They, they had been knocked down for, for decades. They'd been low in numbers, and they just started recovering. And there was really no vital need it served. And according to Alberta Thompson, one of the elders in the community, it's, it's not about, it wasn't about culture for her. A good counterexample would be Greenpeace. Um, Greenpeace got out of the seal hunt campaign in probably the late 80s, early 90s. They got out of the campaign. They didn't want to be seen as being anti-Aboriginal. Now, the problem is, is that the commercial seal slaughter, which takes place on the east coast of Canada in March and April every year, is largely undertaken by non-Aboriginal people. It's a commercial slaughter. The people up north who kill seals for food, it's probably in the in the hundreds of seals. Again, I'm not going to imagine what they do with these things, but it's more of a subsistence hunt. It has nothing to do with each other. They're separate hunts at different times of the year for different reasons. The government of Canada decided, like, okay, if you're anti-seal hunt, you're obviously anti-Aboriginal people. You're against Native people feeding themselves up north where it's where it's absolutely necessary, et cetera, et cetera. And Greenpeace bought into that. They decided that they wanted to look... Politically correct. Oh, yeah, essentially politically correct. So they got out of the campaign and... It was a mistake. I think it was a mistake to do that. I think the bottom line with any question having to do with with that is that, you know, what about the animals? What's happening with the animals? Like, is their populations being reduced? Is there unnecessary suffering happening? Thankfully, the commercial seal hunt is pulling in less than a million dollars a year, which is just phenomenal. It's actually really good news because it used to be much bigger than it is. If the people who are relying on the seal hunt for their for their sole income, which nobody does, kept doing that, they would be completely out of business by now. Let's talk about Paul Watson's current situation. Sure. What is Paul Watson's current situation, Dave Nickars? <laughs> Paul Watson is in a little bit of trouble with the law. He was, this was back in May, he was stopped in Germany on a 10-year-old warrant from Costa Rica. And this was having to do with a shark poaching campaign in... 2002. If you've seen the movie Sharkwater, in fact, you can see the, the specific footage of what they're talking about. There was a charge brought against him, and he actually took the footage that uh, Rob Stewart from Sharkwater 
had taken and he showed it to the court and the court said oh yeah you didn't you didn't try to kill anybody or whatever the charge was i think it was attempted murder at that point and then he left and, and got back on the ship and then he was called back on the same charge so what happened was someone bribed some official and he was he was going to face this again and decided i'm out of here i'm not going to i'm not going to play with this sort of kangaroo court situation so nothing happened for 10 years he was able to go and come from any country in the world and all of a sudden this may he was stopped in germany on a 10 year old warrant from costa rica and he was held three hundred thousand dollars bail and basically had to leave the country because what happened was they were holding him on the costa rican warrant for some reason and we still don't know why you know why why a 10 year old warrant which was clearly politically motivated was being addressed that seriously by the german government and what happened was japan got in on it and they decided to try to extradite him as well so he decided to leave now i want to make something clear though when you forfeit your bail in germany it's not the same thing as is here in the united states it's not like you're a wanted man it's you know they just simply wanted to rearrest him at that point and he left and then forfeited his bail but it's not like okay he's on the run and you know it's some sort of exciting adventure movie or something he's he's simply in a place um i actually don't know where he is but he's he's somewhere safe and um he's not in your house is he nah, i not not as far as i know he I, is i haven't you're lying <laughs> He's in my Paul garage. Watson is in your house. <laughs> yeah, great. We'll have police storming down the door. Um, Paul Watson's in 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 legal trouble, certainly, but um, he is in a location that's unknown to me and to the to the rest of the people at the office in in the United States. And um, we've got to figure some stuff out because we don't want him going to Japan to face any charges because again, that'd be very politically motivated. The the charges from Costa Rica are just completely false and they've been proven to be false essentially. See, what surprises me, Paul Watson has been in trouble before with the law. It's, it's no secret. Um, in 1997, he was held for, I think, 50 days in a jail in the Netherlands awaiting extradition to Norway for sinking whaling ships, but it never happened because the extradition order was completely garbage and... He had to spend time in jail, and he's he's had other run-ins with the law, but he's gotten out of them. And this this one surprises me. Um, there's more going on here, and uh, I'm really concerned. Um, there's no reason why he needs to be, you know, incommunicado. And uh, yeah, that's that's the thing. It's a legal limbo, so to speak. Paul Watson is obviously the the charismatic face of Sea Shepherd. If he were to go to jail, would Sea Shepherd be able to? Keep going. Yeah, Paul Watson is a very, he's, he's been the leader, the founder and leader of Sea Shepherd and director and, and media spokesperson and, and pretty much the leader and, and face of Sea Shepherd for the whole time. And uh, yeah, if, if, it, if it came to that, which I hope it doesn't, we, we simply will go on. We've got a board of directors. Um, we've got volunteers. We've got people who run the ships. Yeah, we didn't make it so that Paul Watson, if he's removed, everything collapses. It's, it's actually, it's actually a self-preservation thing because if Paul Watson had to be in charge of everything, he, it's simply impossible. There's, we've got two large ships. We've got a smaller ship. Basically, we're looking at over a hundred crew members for an Antarctic campaign, and there just has to be things that go on without his direct, <laughs> you know, everyday say so. So yeah, no, Sea Shepherd would go on and. Um, Paul Watson's been doing things for so long. He's he's a longtime activist, and you know he doesn't need to to put up with this shit. It's terrible. Like you know he's sixty two years old, and he has to lay low because there's some legal issues. 
I'm sure it'll come out good, but um, for now it's been dragging on a little bit longer than I'm comfortable with. Again, this is, you know, talking to the Sea Shepherd legal team and the media people at Sea Shepherd. It's, it's a real unknown at this point. Dave Nickars, Sea Shepherd crew member and the guy who fixed my toilet. Thank you for being on Escape Velocity Radio with us. This was fun, guys. Thanks for having me. It seems to bring us to the end of this episode. That one was a right treasure, wasn't it? I still believe that Dave Nickars is hiding Paul Watson in his basement. Well, that wraps it up, doesn't it? That wraps her up, Derek. You know what? We want your feedback, people. Yes, please. Please. You can call us at 701-213-4483. That number again is 701-213-4483. And you can leave us a message. That's not a joke, right? We actually have a phone number that people can call. We do. We don't answer it, but you can leave a message for us and let us know what you think. Let us know what you don't like. If one of the hosts sucks, we can get rid of him and just (laughs) leave the other guy. And one of the hosts is so incredibly handsome that he literally sets your iTunes media player on fire. Then let us know. No, give us your feedback. Come on, people. They can also send us an email. You can, can also send us an email. Send it to feedback at escapevelocityradio.com. We're sitting here clicking refresh on our email program, waiting. You know, Chris, our listeners have also been pretty good with the iTunes feedback. We've have been they? getting some ratings. Really? Some reviews. Tell the world. Tell the world about the podcast, how much you love it. Chris, did you know that we were featured? Escape Velocity Radio was featured in the new and noteworthy section on iTunes just last week. Must have been a glitch. And you know, the more reviews we get, the better our ratings are, the more our chances increase of getting top dollar endorsements from alternative lifestyle companies. Like which ones? Uh, I don't know. My lifestyle determines my death style, my lifestyle. Fuck, who is that? Metallica. Metallica. All right, people. Thanks for joining us again. And remember, buy the new Propagandy record. See you next month! Yeah!